0: Welcome back to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. So happy to have you here with us again. And today I have two very special guests who are connected to one of my favorite books of all time. And now I have written a new book that I know is gonna be so helpful for parents as they look for real practical solutions and really scripts for how to help their kids when they are having a difficult time. So today my guests are Joanna Faber and Julie King who have written the book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen. But I want to give you a little bit of a background. So you are probably thinking, as you hear that title, wait, I know a book that sounds kind of like that. And if you're thinking that, you are not wrong. One of my favorite books of all time is the original book, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish. I hope I got that right. And it was all about effective solutions for kids of all different ages and kind of in all different circumstances. And now, Adele Faber's daughter, Joanna Faber, along with Julie King, have tailored the information that was in that book to different scenarios, to different age groups, and now specifically to this idea of what do we do when we've talked until we're blue in the face and then what do we do when our kids still aren't listening so i'm so happy to have you both on the show thank you for being here today thank you thank you for having us yeah, I want to start first with you, Joanna, just about the original book and what that meant for you and your family. And for those who aren't familiar with the book, if you would give an even better description than I just did of kind of what was the overall thrust of the book or the overall thesis of the book, that would be so helpful, I think, to our listeners who aren't as familiar.
1: Oh my gosh. So you want the whole origin story going back to my mom's book? <laughs> You know, make it two minutes. Make it a two-minute
0: story. It doesn't have to be told the whole uh, saga.
1: <laughs> well, when my mom was a young mother with three young kids, a psychologist named Haim Gnat came to speak at the school and offered a parenting group. And she was curious and joined that group. And then she got really excited about it and got her friend Elaine Maislish to join the group. And they started of uh, really making transformations in their families. And that became a book because they wanted to share this, these ideas that, you know, so many of which were so counterintuitive and yet made such profound differences in their family. So I grew up as the daughter of this world-renowned parenting expert. You know, mm-hmm. which puts me under a certain amount of pressure to have come out well, certainly. <laughs> and when I was a mother of young children, I definitely wanted to keep that on the down low. You know, when I first had my little ones, you know, I didn't want people, you know, side-eyeing me, you know, as I'm, you know, chasing my kid all over the place saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't bite him. <laughs> you. Know, <thank> you. <laughs> Her mother wrote a book on parenting? Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so I was just, you know, keeping my head down. <laughs> I love my mother's work. And I used my mother's work before I had kids for 10 years as a teacher in an elementary school in West Harlem. Mm. And in fact, I told her all my stories, many of which she put into her book, How to Talk So Kids Can Learn. So so I mean no respect when I say that I didn't admit my parentage, mm-hmm. but eventually It came out. It came out when a mom, we had a little group of mothers that would get together and we would let our, you know, two-year-olds play, also known as, you know, bashing each other over the head with trucks while we had a little bit of adult talk. And one of the moms said, you have to read this book, Joanna. It's it's just your style. It sounds just like you. You're going to love this book. And she showed me this book. And I really had to shamefacedly admit that my mother had written that book, <laughs> at which point she announced to the whole group, hey, guys, Joanna's mother wrote this book, and she never told us. <laughs> which led to me being invited to speak at her church. And then everyone was very enthusiastic and wanted to do a parenting group. And so I really kind of got dragged into it. And then meanwhile, this this one on the other side of the country in California, who I grew up with since I was a, a baby, was doing her own thing that had to do with parenting groups. I'll toss the ball to Julie. Yeah. yeah, Yeah,
0: And before you, before you talk about your history together and Julie, before we hear about that, I mean, I just want to say, you know, I so resonate with that Joanna and have been in your shoes as well. I've only been to one mommy and me class with my kids Because the first time that I went, I was the one sobbing in the corner with my baby who wouldn't latch, you know, and like with my postpartum depression and looking, you know, really torn up and, and feeling so like ashamed, like I should really know what I'm doing because I'm the pediatrician here. And in fact, I like talk to people about how to do motherhood. And even now, I'm always thinking about that for my own kids, as I tell other moms or other people. Here's how you can thrive. So then your kids can thrive. And my Mm. gosh, what I've learned is one of the biggest things that I can do that's helpful to other people and to myself is to constantly keep on being transparent. You know, I don't have to share every single dirty secret of my family, but to constantly keep on reminding people and reminding myself that in the end, I'm just a human and that we can have all the tools at our disposal, but that when we are overwhelmed or when our own emotions are at a place where we're dysregulated, all of that always goes out the window so that the biggest blessing I can give to my kids and to myself is to focus on that regulation and on giving myself so much self-compassion in moments when I just can't be regulated. So, okay. So, so we both have experienced that little bit of
1: imposter syndrome. Like I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. Yes. I'm supposed to be perfect. My kids aren't supposed to be fighting in the dirt and, you know, <laughs> screaming and, and bashing each other with drugs. One shift that happened in my mind was when I realized when people were asking me to give a parenting workshop and I thought, you know, who am I to tell other people what to do? You know, Mm -hmm. I have my own struggles. And what I realized and what shifted was that I don't have to present a perfect face. I have all these same problems and conflicts that everybody else has, but I do have some tools that help me deal with them. Mm -hmm. And they are really useful and I can share those and I can, I can start by, you know, here's what, 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 you know, blew up in my family yeah. and here's how it all went South. But then here's what I
0: did. Right. Yep. And you can do it too. Yep. Yeah. So Julie, I want you to, yes, tell listeners about, your relationship with Joanna about how you all grew up together. And then I love it. If you could tell people why you decided to write this particular book together, you all had already written a book together, but I want to hear about this book. Why this one? Yeah, that's
2: what Joanna said. Why, why do we have to do that? (laughs) So Joanna and I, as she mentioned, met as babies. Literally my family had just moved to the suburbs. We grew up in, I grew up in New York and, her family had just moved around the block and we both had an older brother at the time and our mothers didn't know anybody in the neighborhood and her mother literally walked by my house and my mother went running out and said (laughs) saw another mother with little kids and invited her in and they became very good friends and joanne and i ended up becoming very good friends also we went to nursery school together in fact we went to school all the way through high school together and in those early years, as she mentioned, Adele was taking workshops with Haim Ganat, and my mother was reading his books, and they would experiment on Joanna and me and our siblings. We, have, and we ended up having younger siblings also, so there's three of, our, three of our families. And I actually remember talking to my mother about these concepts, and when I was a teenager, her mother was writing one of, one of another book. She wrote Siblings Without Rivalry, which your listeners also might be interested in. It's also a terrific book. I remember finding a comma out of place in the copy with edit when I was copy editing it. So I like to say that I contributed to that book too. And so after high school, Joanne and I went our separate ways. I ended up going to law school and I practiced very briefly before I started having my kids. And I heard... Other parents talking to their kids, and I thought to myself, "I don't think they're they know about this book. They're saying all these things like the they haven't read this book. They need to know about it." But I didn't say it out loud because I wasn't perfect either, you know. <laughs> but then the head of the parent education committee of my son's preschool was looking for a more than one time event to do with the parents, and I volunteered to lead a workshop based on Adele's book. And that very that first group. We decided to meet for eight weeks. We met in somebody's house and halfway through, everybody said, this is really great, this is terrific, but we need to meet, we have to do another eight weeks after when this is over. And I I momentarily panicked and thought, I don't know what I'm gonna do for another eight weeks, but then we figured it out and we met for another eight weeks and then they wanted to do another eight weeks and another eight weeks. And that first group ended up meeting for four and a half years. And other people heard about what I was doing and asked me to come in. So in those early years, I worked only with parents of little kids. And they kept saying to me, we love this approach, we love this material, this really works well, but we need more stories and more examples just for little kids. So I actually called Adele first and I said, I have your next book. And she said, oh, Julie, (laughs) you write it. (laughs) Call your friend Joanna, (laughs) you guys can write it. So I called Joanna, I said, Joanna, we have to write this book. And I said, no, we're not writing a book.
1: but you know it's already been written you're not going to put me in that but <laughs> studied law at princeton so i mean i she was a very persuasive to say to say the least <laughs>
2: So that's how the first book came into being. And you were asking about, like, why did we write another one? Yeah, we were asking ourselves that question as we were writing. But we, the reason we wrote it, <laughs> we, we tend to have a lot of fun as we're writing it, but it's a lot of work, we have to admit. The reason we wrote it was because we had so many, so much more material. We had all these re- readers writing to us, saying, we also have this, we like your book, but we have another question. Pa- parents were writing. My kids gotten a little bit older. We have these new issues. What do we do about homework? What do we do about screen time? Oh my gosh! It's like we wrote that before the pandemic, right? We have to, we have to write something about screen time. So, so that's why we wrote a second book. Was we thought there's so many more issues that people have, so many more questions they have, so many more more topics they want us to address. So the new book, we we present the basic tools in a what we think is a kind of entertaining different way. And then we have a whole lot more chapters on all of these other topics that we just couldn't squeeze into the first book. It was already too long.
1: And we also shared, people also wrote to us. I think we have over a thousand emails from all over the world, from Australia, from Russia, from Romania, from Malaysia and shared stories with us of how they use the skills. And we put their stories. We, we, you know, we broke up the didactic chapters with little stories. And and also with some, at, we published some actual letters and we did a Q&A, sort of a Dear Abby type of aspect too.
0: I think that people are so appreciative of that. I think that parents are so appreciative of... I want to know what to do in this specific situation in a way that is evidence-based and a little bit prescriptive. You know, I I find that a lot of parenting books that we recommend in my pediatrics office are very philosophical and that's so helpful. I think as a first step to have, and I, you know, you, you put that in the beginning of your book, like, like you talked about and I want to get into that in, in a second, but It helps to have the underlying philosophy and the parenting style set, but then... I think things are so complicated with kids, and life is so complicated, and people are so unsure of themselves these days. I think because they're trying to grapple with the way their parents maybe raised them, or like a more authoritarian style that they were gr- that they grew up with, and then what they're being kind of told to do out here in like the new world of parenting, and they don't know how to reconcile those two things. And so, what I have found is that people come into my office and say very, very specific scenarios. And want me to walk them through each one. And so you really do that in this book. I mean, it's like about unnecessary roughness when kids have anxiety, fears, and meltdowns, when kids are complaining, whining, and defiance. And you have like when someone name calls, when they're sore loser. I mean, it gets down very, very nitty gritty. And I think that's one of the most helpful pieces of a book like this is that people don't have to guess that they can look to an example. And then it might be different for them when they're working it out with their own kid, but they at least have a little bit more guidance from someone they can trust.
1: And those are the exact questions that people have emailed to us and asked us, you know, but what about, you know, with my kid, every time I play, we play games with the family. We love playing family games, but he always has a huge hysterical temper tantrum. If he loses, what do I do? I mean, As you say, you've experienced the same thing in your office. People want to know specifics. It's hard to translate abstract theory into action when you're in that moment of chaos and high emotion. So it really helps to hear, oh, this happened in somebody else's home. I recognize this and this is what this person did and it was helpful. I'll try that.
0: Absolutely. Now, Julie, take us back, though, back us up a little bit and talk to us about the overall philosophy of how to talk, the how to talk workshops you do, the entire kind of emotion coaching of kids. Tell us more about that. So people do have a foundation as they're reading these books.
2: Sure, sure. What I find is, and I'm still doing workshops based on, now I've created workshops based on the new books, so I'm continuing to do workshops. And what I find is that mm-hmm. parents hear how to talk when kids won't listen or how to talk so little kids will listen. And they say, listen, that's what I want my kids to do. I want my kids to listen. My kids don't listen. And what do they really mean? I mean, my kids don't do what I say, right? (laughs) Don't behave. So the Mm -hmm. first big idea that underlies everything we do is that there's a connection between how kids feel and how they behave, right? In fact, we can just say more generally, Mm -hmm. there's a connection between how people feel and how people behave. I always say to parents, like, think about those moments in your life recently when you're glad you didn't accidentally leave the Zoom camera and microphone on when you were talking to your kids and you know what I'm talking about, right? Those moments when you raised your voice or threatened them or said, I'm leaving without you if you don't come now, those sorts of moments. If you reflect on what was going on for you as a parent and those moments, they tend to be those times when, you know, we're not feeling our best. We're feeling pressured for time or we had an argument with our spouse or something went wrong at work or, you know, for so many different reasons, we're not at our best we're not feeling our best and we're not, we're not our best as parents. So it's true for us as adults and it's true for kids also. They are more likely to behave well when they feel okay. So the first question we ask ourselves is, okay, how can we help them feel better? And one thing we can do is to accept their feelings, which always sounds so simple when I say it, mm-hmm. it you know in theory, but in practice, it can be very hard to do. Often because they're having feelings we don't want them to have, we need to go. You're not in the mood to go. You feel you're not finished. You want to fit like I don't want you to feel that way. <laughs> you know you're 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 sick of that baby brother. Like that's a terrible thing. Like I, you know I went through nine months to make him. You, you know that sort of thing. So oftentimes we <laughs> feel because we don't want them to have those feelings. So that's I would say that's the first big idea that underlies everything we do. And how you put that into practice, of course, is, you know, why we had to write a whole book about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and I, I feel that so, so hard. My youngest daughter, Maria, she's five. And she is the younger sister of an eight-year-old who has autism. I know, Julie, I think you have a kiddo on the spectrum as well. And We have a little kid that comes to our house. It's our nanny's daughter. And she has a complex medical issue and like a series, like she has a list long of diagnoses. And we love this nanny though. She's someone who's been with us since the very beginning. She's part of our family. We're kind of determined to make it work come hell or hell or high water, you know. And my middle daughter expresses often... I like the nanny, but could she find a sitter for this kid? Because I'd really (laughs) love it if she didn't bring her. Well, first she expressed it to us, and then she started expressing it to the kid. You know, like, I'd love it if you would just leave, because I feel jealous that you're here in my house, right? So that feeling, I want it to go away. My initial reaction is, I do not want to accept this feeling. You need to grow up. Pull your big girl pants on and get over it because this is the scenario in which we live and you're about to ruin everything for us. And the reality is, the more I do that, the more that's my inclination, actually, the worse her behavior gets because she feels not listened to. The more that I am leaning into that, and it doesn't mean we're going to change the scenario actually in terms of who's coming to our house and watching her, but the more that I can be accepting of that feeling and validating her and with her in the feeling and not needing her to move out of it quickly, the better she does, the better she has done over time. And it's a very difficult to think thing to do as a parent, especially a working parent who like I need to get out the door. I don't need you to be telling me how you like hate this person. Now we're having a ruckus and there's chaos as I'm leaving all these things. So I think a lot of parents will really feel that in their core of like, sometimes the feelings are inconvenient or they're yucky, or I wasn't allowed to have that feeling when I was little. And so it feels very uncomfortable for me to allow my kids to have that feeling now.
1: That is, Is such a great example of where this approach feels very counterintuitive, Mm -hmm. because you need to get to work. You need her to stay with this nanny and this other kid, and the the fear is that if you accept those negative feelings, you'll amplify them. Mm -hmm. And and we feel like we need to shut them down right away. You know, it's not so bad. You'll have fun anyway. That's not nice. But what happens is, as, as you experience, that causes the kid to dig in harder. It's like, no, I won't, and I, don't, I hate her because now she really has to convince you because you're telling her it's not so bad. And the strange counterintuitive fact is that when we say, like, oh, you wish the nanny would just come without little Beatrice because you really don't like the way she, you know, gets in your face or touches all your toys, that's so annoying – That that is what is going to allow a kid to calm down and start to think more clearly and work with you instead of against you. Because if you accept all those feelings, oh, so you don't like this and you don't like that and you don't even like how she talks and you don't like, you know, you wish she you could shut her up in the closet and lock the door. You know, if you could say all that, you could at one point get to hmm we really need ideas what can we do you know so that you know it's not so awful is there anything we can do is there any activity you can think of or toy you might put out you know we let's let's write down some ideas and then you have a kid who's working with you instead of against you but you can only get to that by first accepting all the negative feelings which is which is tough
0: yeah which is tough Mama, it is here and available for download. It's the new Modern Mama's Club app. We are so ready to join you on your personal journey from conflicted to centered. We want to take you on an evidence-based path from feeling conflicted all the time, from feeling pulled in all kinds of directions, from feeling burnt out to feeling really purposeful and aligned. As you move through your working motherhood experience, no matter what is happening around you. So go check it out in the app store. And you're talking about, you know, eventually collaborative problem solving with your kid, letting them be part of the solution along with you whenever possible, I, I want to um, ask some specific questions from the book about ones that people ask me constantly in clinics. So I know that they're burning questions in our listeners' minds. And I always like to give very specific tips on the podcast in addition to broad strokes. So Julie, maybe you can take this one, this first one. The One of the topics you guys touch on is toothbrushing, the most terrible Torture. Can you give us? Can you give us some tips on toothbrushing? I want to hear your. I want to hear your answers on this. I. I have a few tricks up my sleeve, but I think you guys probably have even better psychologically appropriate tips that you use with with your kids in these books.
2: <laughs> right. Well, okay. So I can tell you one one thing that does not work well because I think I actually tried this with one of my kids, which was to pry open his mouth when he said, "No, I'm not brushing my teeth," and he go, you know, and. I think it's the strongest muscle in your in your body or something, you know, like can't open a kid's, right? So, so that's not going to work. So what can we do? Well, you know, I always ask myself when, when parents ask me a question, I always ask first, what's going on for the child? Why does he not want to brush his teeth? Because the way we answer that question is going to depend on what's going on for that particular child. You're asking me this sort of theoretical question, so I'm going to make up a few reasons. But the reasons matter. And the way that I approach it is going to depend on what the reasons are. So sometimes a kid just feels like I'm busy, I'm playing. I don't really feel like doing that. I did it yesterday, did it the day before. It's enough already. That's not very interesting, right? So for, for And this is typical for two-, three-, I just like, eh, I don't, you know, I'm going to assert myself. I'm going to say no when I say it, time to brush your teeth. So for those kids, my first go-to is to be playful. I'm going to think of some way to make this an enticing, interesting activity. And I'll tell you what I did with my kids because I – did I mention I have three kids also? And they all went through the, you know, not wanting to brush their teeth thing. So I remember there was a day when – I think Asher must've been two or three and I had told him it was time to brush his teeth. And he said, you know, what, what little kids say, no. (laughs) So and I like, Oh, you know what I heard? I heard that all the zoo animals have escaped from the zoo and they're hiding in kids' mouths. Should we look in your mouth and see if they're in there? Some suddenly my little kid who was refusing to open his mouth, was like, what do you see? You know? And i think I see a tiger wait a second is a giraffe back there oh my gosh and we did this whole there's animals in your mouth for several days in a row and then he we branched out to find did you I think I see some blueberries from breakfast there's sand from the from the playground you're not supposed to bring that home you know just anything to get (laughs) giggling and engaged so being playful and we have a number of ideas we're not gonna be able to go through them all in this interview but we have a ton of ideas of how to be playful with little kids and one of my favorites is to make an inanimate object talk so that's another thing I sometimes do with my kids if we were not in the bathroom listen I hear your toothbrush is saying Asher Asher I'm all alone here I need to I need to see your mouth your, your toothbrush is calling you should we go talk to your toothbrush very few little kids can resist a talking toothbrush, you know. So, so that's for the kid who just, you know, doesn't, isn't in the mood. We can engage them because little kids like to play. That's their, that's their language, right? But what about the kid who doesn't want to brush their teeth because of the taste of the toothpaste or the feeling of the toothbrush in their mouth? I sometimes say to parents, imagine if every night, instead of brushing your own teeth, somebody in your family, maybe it's your spouse or maybe it's your kid, has to brush your teeth for you. Imagine what that would be like. I can tell you my husband who's, let's just say his fine motor skills yeah, are not terrible. great.
0: Terrible. <laughs> and
2: I have a strong <laughs> gag reflex, right? So for a kid who has that kind of reaction, I'm looking, I'm thinking maybe this child needs to have a little bit of control. I've had a mom who said her kid didn't like the feeling of the toothbrush going too far back. They would brush his teeth, and he, they had a little signal if it was if she, he needed her to stop, giving him some control over it. So she still needed to get in there. He wasn't old enough to do it himself. Another child who didn't like the taste of the toothpaste. You can find different toothpaste that aren't so spicy. One mom called the dentist and said, "My kid just doesn't like anything." And the dentist said, "Oh, forget the toothpaste. Just do brush with with water. It, it'll still be better. You know, it, it'll still still do a lot of good." So there's a lot of mm-hmm. ways to address what might be underneath. the, the, I don't want to brush my teeth thing. Julie, there was one, I think you've told this, you had this story from
1: one of your clients where she would have the little girl bring her dolls in and have a little toothbrushing clinic where the girl would brush the doll's teeth first, you know, the doll's teeth and let her explain to the dolls like oh you have to do this so you won't get a cavity and let her take on the role of the you know the parental figure the authority figure so and I just want to emphasize that this idea of being playful it's not it's not a trick it's not to trick a child but it's Mm -hmm. to meet children where they are instead of this day where there's one after another grim command you have to do this you have to do that you have to do that it's just a way to, you know, make it fun, make it pleasant, make it playful. And, it, you know, I, I think in my mom's book, one of, one of the chapters is labeled, don't change a mind, change a mood. And, and that's what we're doing here with play. We're just meeting a child in, in the way that they like to function naturally, which is through play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad you said that because I think there's a lot of moms who are going to listen to this and think their number one response is going to be, that sounds exhausting. Like, I want them just to do it. That sounds exhausting. And I think if you're remembering that that's actually where your kid is, so if you want them to do it, you kind of have to do it in a way that's going to be where they are, or also just not going to work. You're going to feel more exhausted when they're fighting you against it. And two, That if you are feeling exhausted by that, that's totally fair. But maybe that means we got to take a look at the other things that are making it so you have low bandwidth, like a little more rest or taking a few things off the to-do list or making your dinner prep way less complicated or you know, making sure that you're getting your partner on board to help with the laundry. So you're not doing that. So then when your kids are in these positions and you're needing them to do these things that you really want them to do, you have kind of the wherewithal, you have those reserves to be able to think a little bit more clearly and a little more creatively with your kids to get Mm -hmm. them to do it. And to know that sometimes if you're having a hard time accessing that part of your brain, your own playful self, that that's okay too, to have some acceptance for where you are in that moment. Yeah. Kids are exhausting. And sometimes the choice
1: is, you know, we can be exhausted and angry at each other or, or sort of exhausted and, and happy together. But it, it's also true, and they did some studies with this, that the more you approach your child in, in a playful way and let the child take the lead, there's an aura effect. The mm-hmm. more cooperative the child will have, will be. With a few, you know, wrapped out commands, you know, oh, we have to leave now, or you have to put that down. Whereas if a child's being ordered around, you know, all day long, they just start to feel like, you know, I there's no reason for me to cooperate.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, they get I, exhausted you know, from our demands. demands.
1: <laughs> every time, every time you can bring yourself to be a little playful, you know, you're getting you're getting some
2: credits there. A dad recently asked me don't they just have to learn that some things they just have to do and they're not going to be fun? And, you know, my my thought is, yes, they we all have to learn that painful lesson that there are things we have to do that we don't like. And I think this is an, a valuable life skill to take something that we have to do and make it enjoyable think about those times when you have to fold the laundry or wash a, a, you know, dishes you know, the sink is piled high and you've got the mess in the kitchen what do we do i know i put on a podcast maybe this one or you know i listen to music or i talk to a friend i i find ways to make my chores more enjoyable and I think that's also what we're teaching our kids: is that yeah, we have to brush our teeth, but we could pretend we're in at the dentist office. Here's my dental chair. That's the toilet seat. Would you like to sit down, <laughs> sir? You know, and I we'll we'll pretend that we're in the dentist office, so we can still get the same thing done. And I see it in my kids. My I see now. Joanne and I have kids who are grown now, and I see my son, who is very disciplined and does the things he has to do. Sometimes very playful about how he does certain things. I'm trying to think of an example and I'm not coming up with one. But he's he's always doing playful things with his friends. And I think what a great skill to have as an adult.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Actually, we put up an Instagram post that was about how to get through kind of the chores in your life and have that you really don't want to do, but more efficiently. And one of the things we said on there was make it enjoyable, right? Like you have to do your taxes, pair it with a glass of wine, maybe not two or three glasses. Cause then you won't do the taxes very okay. well, but like one <laughs> glass is good. You know? Yeah. You want put in your AirPods to do the laundry, that type of thing. And we had someone respond back exactly like that. Well, I think sometimes it's, it's important for people for our kids and for us to learn the grit of getting through a difficult situation. And what I Mm. thought is there's plenty of difficult situations in which you cannot make it fun because they just are difficult in life and that will happen anyway. So I am not trying to make things more difficult than they need to be for my day-to-day existence. (laughs) Thank you very much. We'll have enough of that on its own. So I think what you're saying is, is correct. And that, by learning to be more playful and and enjoyed, that is going to rub off on our kids as well. That creates the environment that we want to have in our homes for our children. Joanna, before we close out, I wanted to also do one additional example because the toothbrushing is kind of one of those, like every single day you have to do it. The other Mm. thing that people talk to me about a lot is transitions. So it's, and we've Mm -hmm. kind of alluded to this a little bit like that, getting out the door, calming down enough to get to get in the car, to get buckled in in the seats. Oh. Those transition things tend to be a big like my kids will not listen to me and it's a big it's a big deal. So maybe if you could talk about why for kids transitions are difficult and then what are your tips on on transitions, that'll be really helpful I think to our listeners.
1: Well, first, forget about kids. Transitions are difficult for my husband. You know, try getting him out the door and rushing him. <laughs> the more I, the more I fret, the more he slows down. You know that that is just universal. Nobody likes to be told, "Stop doing what you're st- doing." You know, and hurry up, hurry up, and do what I want you to do. All of a sudden, they seem to develop a hearing problem, right? So, if we can make the transitions especially with, with younger children, if we can make the transitions fun and the transitions a game that can really be helpful to us. So, you know, getting to the car can be, you know, how many, how many steps do you think it will take to the car to get to the car? If you take really long steps, do you think you can get there in 10 steps? One, two, three, or, or do you want to, I think one, one, parents said, you know, do you want to let's fly to the car like little butterflies because our kids were fascinated with butterflies and like here we go. And you know, you're you're offering a fun way to do it and and kids love fantasy and they love games. What else can we do? I mean I used to do that when my kid was, you know, in his early teens, I used to have trouble getting him out the door. I'd have to take him to a dentist appointment and, you know, two minutes before we had to go, he'd be opening the refrigerator and making himself a sandwich because (laughs) I guess he was hungry on the way to the dentist. I was like, now is not the time to make a sandwich. I told you 10 minutes ago, we're going to have to leave. You're going to make us late. And, And that never worked. It never worked. But if I playfully tagged him on the shoulder and said, your old mother is going to beat you to the car, ready, set, go, and went flying out the door, he would happily come glumping out after me. And then we drive to the dentist in a good mood instead of in a grumpy mood. So I guess you're kind of seeing that playful is really one of our very first go-to's. It's hard to interrupt somebody in the middle of what they're doing, and I, th- I bet Julie has
2: something to say about that. Well, I was going to um, uh, say that that or that morning transition, which is to say, you, your kids wake up and you need them to get dressed, go to the bathroom, eat breakfast, get their backpacks, you know that list of things we need them to do in a relatively short period of time, so we can get them out the door. Our tendency is to want to tell them, "Honey, honey, put that down. Go brush your teeth. Did you did you get your shoes? Where? What are you doing now?" Like, get, will get, get your coat on, telling them what to do. And every time we do that, we're creating resistance because kids don't like to be told what to do. They want to decide mm-hmm. for themselves what I'm going to do, right? And that's a conflict because we need them to do this whole long thing. So we need to look for ways to make it more likely that they will tell themselves rather than us telling them. One of the many ways that we suggest is to make a list, write it down. I've had a lot of parents in my workshops have great success by making to-do lists for their kids. And now it's not me telling them what to do, What what's next on your list. And then the kid gets to check it off. Very satisfying. I had one parent in one of my groups, she was a mm-hmm. speech therapist and she had a laminator in her office. She actually made these little laminated Pictures of the of the things she needed her kids to do, and she velcroed them, and then the kid could rip it off, and it makes this very satisfying sound when you rip off the velcro, you know, and put it in a pile. And her kids went; from, they were six and four. They went from it was chaos every morning, just like you're describing, to what's next? Let me go see. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. I'm going to go look. And they they loved going to their separate mm-hmm. list and pulling. Up better yet if your child
1: is involved in making the list if you can ask your child what do you have to do in the morning before you get out and if they can write it or they can come up with the ideas or they can draw a picture then they have you know some involvement there and and you're teaching them responsibility so you know this is not a permissive approach this is you know let's put the kid in charge let's let's encourage autonomy let's encourage responsibility let's let's see if we can take a step back and move ourselves out of the position of you know, always telling a kid what to do so the kid doesn't have to think.
0: Yeah. And, and really about developing community, you know, having people, the kids feel like they're part of the pact, having them feel like they have a connection with Mm. other people, all of those really amazing pieces of the seven C's of resilience that Ken Ginsburg talks about. I mean, that is what you're teaching when you're doing it in this way And, and getting cooperation in a way that doesn't, like you said, build resistance. You guys, listeners, I think basically you need to go grab this book so that we have all the how-tos. The book is called How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen. It's by Joanna Faber and Julie King. Can you tell folks where to find out more about you all and how to find out more about the book? Our website is how-to-talk.com. So it's the words
2: how-to-talk with dashes in between dot com and we have all workshops and the books and we have an app that goes along with our book called how to talk parenting tips in your pocket we have a facebook page if you go to faber and king or just search for the title of our first book how to talk so little kids will listen you'll find us there we have an instagram parent presence how to talk dot for parents and i think that's pretty much and and, and if you use any of the ideas that you learned in this podcast, you are very much invited to email us and share with us your stories. and you'll find our email at our on our website or you can just send it to info at
0: how-2talk.com. Awesome. Thank you, ladies so much for being here. mama. If you want more of the modern mommy doc podcast, make sure that you click subscribe. So you don't miss any episodes. We'd also be so honored if you shared with your friends and on social media with the hashtag modern mommy doc. If you share about something that inspired you or that you learned from the podcast, we'll be sure to share it on our social media as well. Thanks for listening.